Good evening, everybody. Today, something different. It's 7 p.m. It's after work. I did some family stuff. And now it's time for my walk, which is the first walk in the evening that I've done. So wish me luck. I have not um, done this because well, frankly, I was worried about the heat, and I also like to have my solitude. This is probably going to be very full. We'll see what happens. <clears throat> we have a lot of stuff to go over together. Together. <clears throat> so, I have a whole bunch of podcasts I've been queuing up for clipping. And I'll just give you a little overview of what I've been listening to. The New Books Network is really a treasure trove of leftist material. But sometimes one of their um, guests is not radical enough for them. And I even found them tolerating someone who was questioning the climate narrative and I think it's really interesting because we're going to I think we'll listen to him first and I'll try and clip it down but basically it came to a head where they said well isn't it important that we rile up the masses and the guy's like I'm a scientist not a politician. Well, that was the wrong answer. I mean, I'm just paraphrasing here. That's not exactly what he said, but he said something on that to that effect. And he's also saying that <clears throat> the number of deaths are totally overblown. That will be caused by climate change. The models are oversimplified. And that spending money on reducing poverty will be much more pl- better place than spending money on bad battery technology that's a waste. Or putting like solar panels in Germany. You can spend that money on helping people get out of poverty, he said. And it'll have much more impact on climate than anything else. So we're gonna listen to that podcast. And then I have another podcast I haven't listened to, which is the uh, Chinese vaccination which I think we're going to study for clues into how our media, which is supposedly taken over by the Chinese communists in New York, how our media is now following the playbook of China so we can look to them for advice and guidance as how they deal with the climate, uh, the vaccine people. And then I have some clips from Gary Knoll which are totally off the wall, but it's just too juicy to give up on. So I'm gonna play that one clip from him, it's like crazy. And then we got Free Talk Live, which um, was going over the whole free software history and the the whole iPhone versus Epic for Fortnite, but I think we're going to leave that for another show because this is going to be more on the political side. 
I have been thinking about our last episode a lot. On Well, first of all, it was a little awkward to be reading from Wikipedia. Um, and it was also awkward to have me, like, stammering uh, through the math. But I thought I presented some good clips, and I definitely gave myself some food for thought on the foundations of math. And yes, the bijective is something that I have used before. It's a link, probably link list, you could say, where every node points to the next node and the next node points back. Predecessor, successor for the forward-backwards relationship, but also sideways between layers. You have a pairing of two sets where every element points to element in the same position. So number five is associated with number five in the other set. In any case, <coughs> definitely some good food for thought. And um, we're going to get back to the philosophy of mathematics for sure and the history of computer science and the foundations of them. But it's going to take a while because we have some other stuff to take care of first. <clears throat> like the takeover of our entire planet. Now, we also got some input from Scotty, who was talking about some PDF file that he found, and there was more interesting topics that weren't even covered. He got the book from Clousy from the WMF for the big reset, and we're going to have to go through that and actually read it, I think. Um, which is going to be a pain. Maybe we can find an audiobook version of it, or we'll have a computer read it, and we'll clip that. Boy, I'm sure you guys want to hear a computer voice reading you the WMF. But hey, might be better than me reading it to you. Um, or I'll listen to it on the computer voice, and then if I find a good clip, then I'll read you that passage. And then, um, there was another one on the new books, which was How Not to Be a Dick, which was pretty good. They talked about insecurities causing behavior that triggers a negative reaction in other people, and a loop. And then, uh... Yeah, fancy that. And there was another podcast I started, but I didn't really listen to it, about this um, guy saying the quantum something of behavior, and it was pretty esoteric. So I'm really not into esotericism, but he was basically saying, follow your intuition, and everything's going to be okay. So, all right. I guess we're going to follow our intuition and be random. Random, random, random. 
So we got lots of topics to cover. I'm not sure what we're going to get through to today, how long this walk's going to be. My plan is to walk for about 10 miles. But uh, we'll see how we go and when I might turn back. The good thing about walking in the evening is I don't have a deadline. I don't have to go to work. So I can go as long as I want, like on a Saturday. <clears throat> in the morning, I'm always rushing to get back to home to start my office. So, uh... Yeah. All right. Well, let's get knee deep in the clips, guys and girls and peoples and ladies and germs. Oh, and I was listening to Jocko. Jocko kicks ass. And Jocko says you have to build relationships. And he said that the leader has to demonstrate that he's suffering as much as his employees because people will know he said the leader has to suffer more than the employees otherwise they'll turn on you <clears throat> so there you go okay let's hit it and I'm going to save all you guys the the call to call in and join me because no one ever does my dad did one time so yeah We're, you're gonna be stuck with me for a while let's put it that way no one's gonna come and save you so this guy works in a think tank with top scientists on how to spend money for the greatest good not the greatest economic return but the greatest humanitarian good and he also studies climate. So he's going to introduce his, the idea of his book right now. And <clears throat> the name of his book is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. And his name is Björn Lomborg. And he's got the slightest, slightest nor northern accent. Okay, let's play it. get it very clear. Climate is a real man-made problem and it will create a significant problem towards the end of the century. So this is a real problem. The point that I try to make throughout the book is that we have dramatically exaggerated the threat. A lot of people, so about half the world's population now believes that it's likely global warming will lead to the extinction of the human race. Whereas the UN climate panel indicates that by the end of the century, the cost of climate change will be equivalent to, say, 3.6%. I'm sure we'll get back to that. 3.6% reduction in GDP. So to put it very bluntly, because they also expect each one of us will be, on average, 3.5 times richer by the end of the century, the UN is essentially saying instead of being 3.5 times richer, we'll only be 3.34 times richer, which of course is a problem, but not the end of the world. So this next clip, I'm reading between the lines, 
and I'll shorten what he said, but we're going to play it. And I'll even tell you how long the next clip's going to be, so if you want to uh, skip over it, no, well, one minute, 16 seconds. Okay. I'm probably going to take longer to actually say what he said. <clears throat> he said that the UN has a climate model, which the whole world will get enormously rich by the end of, the, of this century. And because they will become rich, those new countries, those starter countries, are going to produce a humongous amount of carbon. So I think maybe part of what we're what is actually happening between the lines is that people are trying to prevent um, these starting countries from actually going through this process of becoming wealthy just to stunt their carbon um, emissions and uh, their natural resource consumption because they know if they uh, use up all of the resources then there'll be less for us to mine in their poor countries and just roll over them with tanks and uh, trucks. <clears throat> they might fight back. They might get strapped. So that's just kind of the theory that I'm reading between the lines. I have my no agenda goggles on. Um, who knows? Who knows? I already get one minute 40, so my clip is longer than his. <laughs> Well, let's play it. You know, the UN has set out uh, 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 five different scenarios of what will be the GDP growth uh, over this century. Uh, and I think one of the important things that many people don't quite recognize is that the UN estimate that on all scenarios, the world will be much richer and reasonably likely a lot more richer and much more, uh, uh, much less unequal, uh, will be much better off in so many different ways. And the important bit is if that actually ends up not happening. So let's assume that GDP growth would be much, much less. The problem of global warming will also be much, much less because most of this is actually driven by the fact that most of humanity will become rich in the 21st century and hence emit a lot more CO2. Remember, it's not the US, Europe, uh, the rest of the rich world that will be emitting most of the CO2. It's all the newcomers, so China, but also India and Africa, that'll really be the main producers of CO2. So in some sense, it's baked into the issue we're only going to have a big problem with climate if we also get a situation where people will get very rich. Obviously, getting rich part is wonderful. Getting much CO2 is a problem. Now, normally, I clip out all of the moderators from the New Book Networks, uh, <clears throat> except when they mess up. So this guy is basically stating now what I just said, that the UN is at some level anti-growth at a future level and he corrects himself a superficial level but i really think there is some kind of anti-growth sentiment um where they just want to make it as expensive as possible for other countries to reach our level of growth um, or maturity and uh, to prevent them from, uh, prevent the others from uh, developing.
you have both the, the combination within the UN and within the climate community of this, uh, what's perceived to be a trade-off, and part of the climate community is sort of anti-growth at, at some sort of uh, future level, uh, uh, superficial level, but it is basically in, in your presentation a trade-off that growth comes with energy consumption, with carbon generation. Uh the next important clip is the Schelling conjecture, which basically says that lifting people out of poverty will tackle the humanitarian, humanitarian problems of poverty um, <clears throat> caused by climate change. So it'll help people with climate change. Now it won't necessarily reduce carbon, which I think is what we're going to be getting into. It's called the Schelling uh, uh, conjecture. Uh, it's one of the uh, Nobel economists that we work with, Thomas Schelling, uh, who's unfortunately dead now. Uh, but he already back in the 80s uh, talked about the idea of saying, look, climate change will produce problems. But if you lift people out of poverty, they will also have much more ability to tackle many of these problems. The obvious thing is, you know, if, if you live in, under corrugated roof and a hurricane comes in, you're likely to be vastly damaged in these, in these sort of slum cities. But if you are much better off and you built a, a house of, uh, of, of stone and, and, you know, better building construction materials, you're much more likely to actually stay put. Uh, the simple metaphor is if a hurricane hits Florida, uh, you know, lots of damage, but very few dead, whereas the same sort of hurricane hits Guatemala, uh, like Hurricane Mitch back in 1998, you get uh, tens of thousands of dead. So this next super long clip, and I'm going to leave the whole clip because it's really worth listening to, he's going to basically say, <clears throat> do something, but don't do everything, because... There's a certain cutoff point where, and he goes into the cost of going to zero percent output of carbon is going to cost you something like 16% of your GDP. But it's only going to reduce the damage by 1% of GDP. And he's saying, spend half a percent to reduce the uh, climate damage by 1% or something like that. And that's the uh, sweet spot. So let's hear it. The global warming going to cost, uh, you know, how much damage are we going to experience? And the answer from both DICE, which is the uh, Nordhaus model, but also from Fund and PAGE, which are the other uh, two uh, sort of most globally well-known and most uh, academically discussed models show about three to four percent cost uh, by 2100 in a sort of scenario of we don't do anything. So the impact of climate change by the end of the century, if we do nothing, is equivalent to making us feel like we are three to four percent less well off than we otherwise would have been. So that and that, then that's sorry, the Going. Sorry, can Go I on. just because I, I, yep. I because it's a complicated argument. So that's one side of the point. Then the other side is how much is it going to cost you to cut carbon emissions? Now, obviously, cutting a little bit turns out to be fairly simple. We know that you know you can reasonably cut five, ten, fifteen percent 
at very low cost if you do it smartly. Unfortunately, politicians often don't do that. But if you do it smartly, basically with one carbon tax or a cap and trade system that's very effective, that is well regulated, you can cut this very, very easily. You know, had we done that, for instance, in Europe, most of that would have come from simply switching from coal to gas. Very cheap very simple to do. But also there's lots of inefficiencies in any system, especially when you don't price carbon. So if you start pricing it, you can cut it cheaply. If you want to cut a lot more, and obviously if you want to go to net zero, as many people are now starting to talk about, that is a very different thing. You're basically talking about re-engineering the engine of growth that has been driving, you know, at least the last 200 years. You know, clearly the industrial revolution was based on coal, and then later on oil and gas. And we know that there is a very strong bi-directional connection between uh, uh, the amount of, uh, and cheapness of energy and growth. So if you try to reduce uh, the, the emissions of CO2, which typically means you have to get less reliable or less uh, efficient and often costlier uh, energy in, you will have a cost. Now, this is not going to take you to the poorhouse. So this is not the, you know, the Republican sort of, oh, it's the end of the world kind of thing, but it has real costs. Uh, just to give you one data point, uh, uh, the New Zealand government is the only government actually that have promised to go net carbon zero by 2050. Uh, and they have actually asked for an independent review of how much is that going to cost. Their official estimate indicate that it's going to cost them 16% of GDP by 2050. So you get a sense of, yes, there is a problem here. You know, the 3% by 3 to 4% by the end of the century with global warming. If you cut a little bit, you can actually cut the most damaging uh, scenarios. I'm just, this is obviously, you, you need to do this in a actual spreadsheet or something, but I'm just giving you a sense. So if it was 4%, maybe you can cut it down to 3%. That's great. You've just cut a percent of the damage cost by 2100. If you did that, for half a percent GDP loss, you're you're well off. That's a great idea. But if you cut, say, 2% with an expenditure of 16%, and again, I'm just making you know uh, uh, hand movements here because you actually need to look at the, 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 sure, the, 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 the numbers, yeah. then clearly you have made a bad deal. You've, cut, uh, you've paid up 16%, but you've only cut the damages by 2%. The point here is, like, uh, any economist would end up saying there is an equilibrium. There is a place where you have the minimum cost and cost to from climate change. You have to remember we need to pay both. We both need to pay the damage that will come from global warming. We need to pay the damage that will come from global warming policies. It's about minimizing the sum of those two. That's what Nordhaus has done. That's what I uh, point out in the book. Many other models will give about the same, but I've just used Nordhaus because he he got the Nobel Prize and you know, he's certainly uh, the mainstream and it gives very much the same outcomes. What he says is if you cut temperatures by about 0 0.6 degrees Fahrenheit, so down to 3 point, from, uh, sorry, would down be, from where they would from be what given they, the current trajectory. Yes. So, so uh, for, down from uh, uh, 7 point four degrees Fahrenheit down to 6.75 degrees Fahrenheit, you have done the optimal outcome. You have reduced damages over the centuries by 0.8% of GDP at an extra cost of 0.4%. If you do more, you're actually going to end up with a lower net benefit. If you do less, you're also going to end up with lower benefits. So the point is, do something, don't do everything. So... Now, uh, 
our host is going to get triggered because basically this guy is going to say that the global flooding sea level rise is overrated and people are going to adapt <clears throat> to these changes and this guy's just about to lose it of those arguments are that they're based on models that at best have some very dubious assumptions built into them. And let me just give you one example. Uh, so for instance, sea level rise, uh, which is you know one of the most well-known, and you know, if you think think about sort of illustration of global warming, you'll see uh, the uh, Lady Liberty being flooded or you know the Louvre or, or the Eiffel Tower being flooded or something. It's a very, very powerful metaphor and has a sense of, oh my God, this is really going to screw us all. What the problem with those arguments are, so you know, one famous study uh, last year, and it got headlines from Washington, Washington Post and across the country and really across the world was that 187 million people are going to get have to move and you know in some of the more spectacular news reporting it was they're going to drown. Uh, 187 million people will have to move if you don't look for adapt adaptation. If you assume that everybody is just going to sit where they live for the next 80 years and do nothing. But if you look at what people actually do, and there's been lots of models done with this, and there's one study that I reference uh, that have used uh, three different models for uh, for sea level rise and, and uh, eight different kinds of, of uh, uh, economic uh, 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 development and five different ways of, of adaptation, they find for all of these models, you, you will get dramatically lower impacts because most of this will be mitigated away. We'll simply be building... Uh, uh, you know, uh, levees uh, will nourish the beaches. Will do a lot of other things that are incredibly cheap on an eighty-year perspective. So, just to give you a sense of proportion, what the actual study found was that if you allow people to adapt at very low cost, much less than zero point one percent of GDP, you will instead of seeing one hundred and eighty-seven million people being flooded, you will see three hundred and five thousand people being flooded. And that's important because what that means is you have a problem that you're being told is the end of the world kind of thing. But the reality is it's a very, very small problem. And that again, you're even, I, I just have to say that again, I think most readers will say that the nature of whether it's the flooding. So now we're going to get to the clip where he says that climate is a three to 4% problem. Well, not a 50 to 100% problem like we think it is. It gives you a sense of proportion. Yes, global warming is a problem, but it's not this all all eating uh, dimension of sense that we that we get from a lot of the media and I I think your gut feeling and the and the gut feeling that you're ascribing all your listeners to as well is is not, probably not well uh, well uh, uh, what is that uh, uh, calibrate it uh, if you don't know these numbers. And if you do know these numbers, I think it's a lot harder to believe this is the kind of thing that will end civilization. That's exactly why the economists find this is a three or 4% problem, not a 50 or 100% problem, which I think a lot of people sort of in their minds believe it is. Well, in the next clip, he's going to say that investing into green tech is better than buying current generation solar farms. Now he's going to tell us that solar is not going to solve global warming because the storage systems are not there. Now, 
This is the stuff I love. We catch two elitists discussing the peons as if they would never listen to this podcast. They're saying how dry this is. And what about behavioral science and consent? Right? How do we convince the masses to concede, to give up? And um, how do we affect their behavior? How do we create alarmism? How do we create panic? So I think this is a great clip. I want to make these changes uh, on economic reasons. I think one of you know the issues that is striking in in this debate is, and again I'll reference the University of Chicago again, is you're you're uh, framing this in economic terms, uh, and then I, I I and others are pointing back in behavioral science terms, not the uh, you know n- not the classical uh, liberal uh, market in, uh, environment. But how people behave and how they perceive, and you know, you, the title of the book, "False Alarm" and and the panic, you know, there may be an economic prescription. It's kind of dry. Uh, your case, it's it's, oh, it's uh, certainly dry. Yeah. It's kind of dry. It's uh, it's uh, some unspecified that is unspecific uh, adaptation, uh, low hanging fruit, a reasonable carbon tax enforcement, uh, adaptation, adaptation, adaptation. That works really well. Um, in an academic setting, I think, you know, part of the challenge is that human beings are subject to alarm and can see the planet warming and the, the challenges faced with that, you know, solar may not be the most efficient, uh, approach, but, uh, you know, people feel better when they see a, a, Mm. a, you know, a a windmill. And again, I realize that's not the best way to analyze or promote public policy, but it, it needs to be taken into account to some extent that you, your book is trying to address for better, or for worse. And again, there are a lot of people on the other side of your argument, as you well know, uh, uh, you know, the, the perception of this, not just the, the reality of it. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I think there's two points to this. One is uh, there's no doubt that there's a lot of people who feel very proud of the fact that they have more solar power, wind power, and it makes them feel like they've really made a difference. Uh, and 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 there, my sense is simply, look, future generations are not going to you know judge us for how well we felt about stuff. They're going to you know judge us on how well we actually fixed problems. And my point is twofold. Partly that most of the policies that we do right now on climate cost quite a lot. So I try to estimate, for instance, the cost of the Paris Agreement at one to two trillion dollars a year. Yet the benefit is almost immeasurable, even in a hundred years. So we are doing very little in climate at very high cost, and we are also neglecting a lot of other problems. You know, COVID is the obvious one, uh, but also the fact that the big world's biggest infectious disease, tuberculosis, you could do something about that so cheaply, so effectively. And yet we seem to be fine with the fact that 1.5 million people die each year from easily curable infectious diseases like tuberculosis. So my point here is to say we should not allow ourselves to be judged on how good we feel. We should allow ourselves to be judged on how smart we actually do stuff. I want to make these changes uh, on economic reasons. I think one of you know the issues that is striking in in this debate is, and again, I'll reference the University of Chicago again, is you're, you're uh, framing this in economic terms. Uh, and then I, I, I and others are pointing back in behavioral science terms, not the, 
you know, not the classical uh, liberal uh, market in, uh, environment, but how people behave and how they perceive. And, you know, you, the title of the book, False Alarm and, and the Panic, you know, there may be an economic prescription. It's kind of dry. Uh, your case, it's it's oh, uh, dry. Yeah. It's kind of dry. It's uh, it's uh, some unspecified that is unspecific uh, adaptation, uh, low hanging fruit, a reasonable carbon tax enforcement uh, adaptation, adaptation, adaptation. That works really well um, in an academic setting. I think, you know, part of the challenge is that human beings are subject to alarm and can see the planet warming and the, the challenges faced with that. You know, solar may not be the most efficient uh, approach, but, uh, you know, people feel better when they see, a, a, mm. a, you know, a, a windmill. And yeah. I, again, I realize that's not the best way to analyze or promote public policy, but it, it needs to be taken into account to some extent that you, your book is trying to address for better, for worse. And again, there are a lot of people on the other side of your argument, as you well know, uh, uh, you know, the, the perception of this, not just the, the reality of it. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I think there's two points to this. One is, uh, there's no doubt that there's a lot of people who feel very proud of the fact that they have more solar power, wind power, and it makes them feel like they've really made a difference. Uh, and, and, and there, my sense is simply, look, future generations are not going to you know, judge us for how well we felt about stuff. They're going to you know, judge us on how well we actually fixed problems. And my point is twofold, partly that most of the policies that we do right now on climate cost quite a lot. So I try to estimate, for instance, the cost of the Paris Agreement at one to two trillion dollars a year, yet the benefit is almost immeasurable even in a hundred years. So we are doing very little in climate at very high cost. And we are also neglecting a lot of other problems. You know, COVID is the obvious one, uh, but also the fact that the big world's biggest infectious disease, tuberculosis, you could do something about that so cheaply, so effectively. And yet we seem to be fine with the fact that 1.5 million people die each year from easily curable infectious diseases like tuberculosis. So my point here is to say, we should not allow ourselves to be judged on how good we feel. We should allow ourselves to be judged on how smart we actually do stuff. Wow. That was some podcast we got to clip. That was some treat we got to listen to. And you don't hear that every day. You're not going to hear this on any other podcast series except, of course, New Books Network. But who's going to sift through that stuff for you, my dear listener? Me. I'm going to listen to it because I love random things. And I get the most random material from these scientists and the funny thing is no matter how obscure the topic the scientists will always bring it into context it doesn't matter if they're talking about you know 17th century something they're always going to bring it into context of our today because every single scientist and every single author and every single podcaster even the driest ones sitting in some liberal university with pictures of Joe Biden hanging from the wall or even Bernie hating on Trump. They're going to sit there and they're going to be people. And these people live today. And everything we do is influenced by, you know, where we live, how we live, when we live. And that context influences everything, all of our actions. 
so that will seep in to the topics discussed, the books selected, the words expressed, the analogies given, and so forth. And we can learn something from everything. <clears throat> so that's my principle of randomness. As long as we're staying on the cutting edge of new material, we're going to get some insights before it hits the news. And we're going to see things that will never hit the news, like this guy. You're never going to hear from him in the mainstream media. And that's why you have to listen to the stream of random as opposed to the No Agenda show. Of course, you should listen to the No Agenda show, but you have to listen to my show too, because I give you the things that I'm not deconstructing the media. I'm deconstructing the random. I'm giving you clips from all over the place that you'll never hear. Okay. Um, so they're not mainstream. They're echoes or backgrounds of mainstream. All right. So let's flip a coin. I think we're going to try and listen to this Chinese, um, the Chinese, uh, vaccination next. At least I haven't listened to this podcast yet, but I picked it from the topic and I think it's going to be juicy. So let's get going. Okay, guys. Now this next clip, I have to disclaim. I have not checked this lady out. What she's saying sounds crazy. It is some of the craziest shit I've heard in a while. The only thing missing is her saying that the uh, 5G is going to cause the, um, the vaccines to uh, control us. So I'm including this because, well, first of all, if you guys never heard of Gary Knoll, you gotta listen to Gary Knoll. He is probably one of the most radical people out there. And it's just crazy, uh, the stuff that he brings out. And he's got a lot of good health tips. My grandma used to listen to him. God rest her soul. And um, he's an old dude. He makes lots of claims, but he brings the most random shit ever. And I just got to play this one clip because it's so juicy. So please excuse me. And um, we're going to have to spend the next year trying to verify this clip. So I have no idea what's up with it. Okay, so now we're going to get into the Chinese vaccination and how it's an implementation of control of the power over life. And she doesn't say death, but over life and death and defining what it is to be a good citizen. Now, these were mandatory vaccinations and um, extreme large, extremely large systems of technology being implemented over huge populations and huge spaces. So we really are going to get, we're going to read between the lines here and we're going to see what's happening now with the control of the people. Now, if it's true that the vaccine that they want to push on us, the winners of the COVID war, the Ziga, that this is the price that we have to pay is to have our genes modified. If that's true, that's pretty freaking scary. And they're basically saying that they have the power over us. Um, <clears throat> we're going to see how this plays out. And we're going to be watching this um, closely. But I think it's, uh, it's important to learn 
what we can learn from uh, totalitarian states uh, that seem to be influencing ours. So that's why we're going to cover this. Mm -hmm. And um, in the introduction, you argue for the consideration of uh, vaccinations and mass uh, for vaccination and mass vaccination to be um, uh, to be more clear um, as a means of political control, as well as a measure of public health. And then moreover, on page one, uh, you, you make the case that vaccines became uh, medical technologies of governance that bound together the individual and the collective the experts and the uneducated, the authorities and the citizens, right, to, to end the quote. So this clearly puts mm-hmm. forward the scope of the book. And I would like to invite you to tell, a little, tell us a little bit more about the keywords and the key arguments um, in, in this uh, introduction. Well, first of all, thank you for those very kind words, uh, which really mean a lot uh, from, from readers. And secondly, yeah, I think... There are a couple of key terms and key arguments to stress at this point. I think one question of definition that really drove the project for me, especially early on, was simply thinking about what it means to actually establish mass vaccination, as opposed to perhaps just giving lots of people a vaccine against a disease. What actually defines systems of mass vaccination? And that was on my mind as I started kind of working out the strategy of essentially following one basic practice, immunization against a variety of diseases in this one uh, kind of polity of China ruled by multiple regimes over um, most decades of the 20th century. And thinking about that definition of mass vaccination um, from a sort of perspective of global health or the history of international health, yields one kind of definition. So in the field of global health, the story of mass immunization in China is very much a post-1949 story of uh, events in the People's Republic of China after its founding in that year. So if you look at reports of the World Health Organization, for example, from the 1970s, when the WHO was attempting to um, determine uh, the state of smallpox uh, vaccination around the world, um, then you see WHO experts like D.A. Henderson, Frank Fenner, and others essentially agreeing on the consensus that China's eradication of smallpox happened during the early People's Republic of China over the course of the 1950s and early 1960s, largely as a result of mass vaccination programs. And these were some of the early reports that I read when I was starting to get into the project and I started to ask, well, how could this have happened how do we understand mass vaccination as something that results in about 512 million people getting one vaccine against one disease over uh, a little more than a decade? And that's really what kind of led me on all this archival and other research um, to one of the arguments that I hope to make in the book, um, that mass vaccination conceived as Uh, a set of people, materials, and systems that supported the production of immunity against diseases at a population level, that concept wasn't totally a product of uh, simply the People's Republic of China, but it actually had important origins earlier in Chinese 20th century uh, under the Republic of China, um, especially during the years of the Second Sino-Japanese War. Um, And that's kind of a basic point to make Um, that kind of comes out of the archives. But I think the second point 
that goes along with it, the one that kind of gains a bit more theoretical traction, hopefully, is that over those key mid-century decades of the kind of development and articulation of those systems, I think we do see the Republic and then the People's Republic asserting increasing responsibility for vaccinating people as a means of accumulating power over life, what we might call biopower in the Foucauldian framework. Um, in some ways, this is often construed as um, asserting uh, the power to protect life, but it can also be read as asserting the power to control life. Um, so in a way, what I'm talking about is the way in which the act of vaccination, um, in particular state-sponsored vaccinations, as those grew in number and scope over the 20th century, um, that act brings the power of the state to bear upon individual bodies in a way that consolidates the power of the state um, in new and really interesting ways. And that point has a couple of consequences that I'll kind of address really quickly. Um, one of these is uh, that the state reckoned with mass vaccination as a set of large technological systems of cultivation, preservation, and distribution of immunizations. Um, it's only when you think about it in terms of large technological systems that um, it's possible to establish and expand uh, systems of mass vaccination. Um, and doing that in turn indicated the establishment of uh, modern medical infrastructures that could themselves contribute to the power of the state over life. So a part of this story is kind of the building up of technological capacities for mass vaccination. Um, conversely, mass vaccination provided a basis upon which Republican and communist administrations were able to promote commitments to modern science. And this is something that we see working out in interesting ways in uh, the post-1949 era in particular, as the People's Republic of China especially built its capacity to record and surveil states of immunity, immunization systems then became technologies of governance and administration in really interesting ways. Um, and another consequence of the state assuming this kind of responsibility uh, to vaccinate its people uh, was to bind the people of China into increasingly strong obligations to submit to the orders of the central government. Receiving vaccines that were sponsored and mandated by the state and thereby possessing bodily immunity against infectious diseases became part of what it meant to be born in China. So if you look at sources, especially from uh, the 1950s, then we see emerging the idea that it's a marker of being a good citizen or a good uh, kind of resident of China to comply with vaccination mandates. Um, and here I drew on work by Adriana Petrina, um, as well as others, to think about concepts of biological citizenship as forms of national belonging in which claims are made on a biological basis uh, to things like rights and care. Um, there are, I think, issues with directly transposing ideas like that to the particular context that I'm looking at, in part because the early 1950s were a time when definitions of things like citizenship um, became quite mutable um, in interesting ways. But I do think it's a time when we see the biological taking on practical weight um, for definitions of um, citizenship and being Chinese during the early People's Republic. So I think those are some of the kind of consequences. 
Mm-hmm. And um, in the introduction, you argue for the consideration of uh, vaccinations and mass uh, for vaccination and mass vaccination to be um, uh, to be more clear um, as a means of political control as well as a measure of public health. And then, moreover, on page one, uh, you, you make the case that vaccines became uh, medical technologies of governance that bound together the individual and the collective the experts and the uneducated, the authorities and the citizens, right, to, to end the quote. So this clearly puts mm-hmm. forward the scope of the book. And I would like to invite you to tell, a little, tell us a little bit more about the keywords and the key arguments um, in, in this uh, introduction. Well, first of all, thank you for those very kind words, uh, which really mean a lot uh, from, from readers. And secondly, yeah, I think... There are a couple of key terms and key arguments to stress at this point. I think one question of definition that really drove the project for me, especially early on, was simply thinking about what it means to actually establish mass vaccination, as opposed to perhaps just giving lots of people a vaccine against a disease. What actually defines systems of mass vaccination? And that was on my mind as I started kind of working out the strategy of essentially following one basic practice, immunization against a variety of diseases in this one uh, kind of polity of China ruled by multiple regimes over um, most decades of the 20th century. And thinking about that definition of mass vaccination um, from a sort of perspective of global health or the history of international health, yields one kind of definition. So in the field of global health, the story of mass immunization in China is very much a post-1949 story of uh, events in the People's Republic of China after its founding in that year. So if you look at reports of the World Health Organization, for example, from the 1970s, when the WHO was attempting to um, determine uh, the state of smallpox uh, vaccination around the world, um, then you see WHO experts like D.A. Henderson, Frank Fenner, and others essentially agreeing on the consensus that China's eradication of smallpox happened during the early People's Republic of China over the course of the 1950s and early 1960s, largely as a result of mass vaccination programs. And these were some of the early reports that I read when I was starting to get into the project and I started to ask, well, how could this have happened how do we understand mass vaccination as something that results in about 512 million people getting one vaccine against one disease over uh, a little more than a decade? Right. And yeah. that's really what kind of led me on all this archival and other research um, to one of the arguments that I hope to make in the book, um, that mass vaccination conceived as Uh, a set of people, materials, and systems that supported the production of immunity against diseases at a population level, that concept wasn't totally a product of uh, simply the People's Republic of China, but it actually had important origins earlier in Chinese 20th century uh, under the Republic of China, um, especially during the years of the Second Sino-Japanese War. Um, And that's kind of a basic point to make um, that kind of comes out of the archives. But I think the second point that goes along with it, the one that kind of gains a bit more theoretical traction, hopefully, is that over those key mid-century decades 
of the kind of development and articulation of those systems, I think we do see the Republic and then the People's Republic asserting increasing responsibility for vaccinating people as a means of accumulating power over life, what we might call biopower in the Foucauldian framework. Um, in some ways, this is often construed as um, asserting uh, the power to protect life, but it can also be read as asserting the power to control life. Um, so in a way, what I'm talking about is the way in which the act of vaccination, um, in particular state-sponsored vaccinations, as those grew in number and scope over the 20th century, um, that act brings the power of the state to bear upon individual bodies in a way that consolidates the power of the state um, in new and really interesting ways. And that point has a couple of consequences that I'll kind of address really quickly. Um, one of these is uh, that the state reckoned with mass vaccination as a set of large technological systems of cultivation, preservation, and distribution of immunizations. Um, it's only when you think about it in terms of large technological systems that um, it's possible to establish and expand uh, systems of mass vaccination. Um, and doing that in turn indicated the establishment of uh, modern medical infrastructures that could themselves contribute to the power of the state over life. So a part of this story is kind of the building up of technological capacities for mass vaccination. Um, conversely, mass vaccination provided a basis upon which Republican and communist administrations were able to promote commitments to modern science. And this is something that we see working out in interesting ways in uh, the post-1949 era in particular, as the People's Republic of China especially built its capacity to record and surveil states of immunity, immunization systems then became technologies of governance and administration in really interesting ways. Um, and another consequence of the state assuming this kind of responsibility uh, to vaccinate its people uh, was to bind the people of China into increasingly strong obligations to submit to the orders of the central government. Receiving vaccines that were sponsored and mandated by the state and thereby possessing bodily immunity against infectious diseases became part of what it meant to be born in China. So if you look at sources, especially from uh, the 1950s, then we see emerging the idea that it's a marker of being a good citizen or a good uh, kind of resident of China to comply with vaccination mandates. Um, and here I drew on work by Adriana Petrina, um, as well as others, to think about concepts of biological citizenship as forms of national belonging in which claims are made on a biological basis uh, to things like rights and care. Um, there are, I think, issues with directly transposing ideas like that to the particular context that I'm looking at, in part because the early 1950s were a time when definitions of things like citizenship um, became quite mutable um, in interesting ways. But I do think it's a time when we see the biological taking on practical weight um, for definitions of um, citizenship and being Chinese during the early People's Republic. So I think those are some of the kind of consequences. Now, this is very interesting. It's the League of Nations who is actually implementing vaccine passes in um, <clears throat> wartime China. And I'm just wondering, um, 
if uh, that also uh, caused people to get stuck um, in battles, for example. We know that the Japanese at that time, you know, massacred hundreds of thousands of people a day. I just hope that uh, we don't find out that they were stuck in some city because they didn't have a vaccine pass and the League of Nations, which is the predecessor of the UN, would have uh, kept them there. So let's play this clip. Uh, mass vaccinations and mass immunizations, uh, sorry, vaccination and mass immunization, I'm sorry, um, came to be linked with uh, citizens' rights and uh, free movement. Right, so going from one mm-hmm. one uh, town to another, uh, and and so on. And here uh, I found it really really interesting the um, this um, document called the inoculation certificate. So I was wondering whether you could say a little bit more about these. Yes. So inoculation certificates were introduced to certain cities uh, during the wartime period as a means of surveilling and enforcing efforts uh, at vaccination. Um, And the idea was that transportation uh, was controlled using these certificates so that you couldn't leave a city by rail or boat without having a vaccination card uh, checked. And if you didn't have a card that then um, left you um, open to the possibility of being vaccinated by force if necessary. Uh, Sometimes these controls uh, might be carried out by local governments, but in other cases they were carried out by non-governmental organizations. And that's actually the material that I have the, the, the best kind of data for um, is in the project uh, that was mounted by the League of Nations Health Organization in 1937 and 1938. Um, this was a widespread epidemic um, prevention project mounted by the League. Um, it had a set of kind of regional um, uh, foci and in the case of Xi'an in Northwest China, um, we see a very strong effort by the League to impose this kind of control on transportation, um, working with local authorities um, to prevent people from leaving Xi'an who had not had a vaccination against cholera. Um, and it was cholera that was kind of the chief uh, concern um, given that there had recently been, been an epidemic. So there was this question of freedom of movement Oh, and uh, that's hilarious. We got our first voicemail from one of the No Agenda producers from from PH, Philippines. So here we go. Hey, what's up, man? This is Crazy Austinite out here in Gitmo, PH, a.k.a. Philippines. Just uh, good luck on your show. Listen to a few of your podcasts. Keep rocking it, man. Take care. All right. So now we're going into the um, Maoist era, and they're starting to pass laws to um, enforce vaccination and also punish you. Now, it seems to me that New York must be a uh, very close to a communist state if they're implementing the same exact things or putting those on the books. Maybe, um, you know, here's a crazy thought. Maybe we owe China so much. Maybe they're just going to take New York and be like, okay, well, you know, we'll just take this city and uh, here's the laws and you can just implement them for us. Think about that. I don't know. That's a crazy idea, but um, it just seems to be weird. Well, we're going to learn more about this before we jump to conclusions. 
But we are allowed to entertain random ideas. So here we go. ...into effect after 1949. Um, and then mm -hmm. the surveillance practices uh, from the war period become normalized, right, as you mentioned. And then yeah. also the, the politicized immunization campaigns become stronger, uh, right, because of uh, economic reasons, because of state formation and, and strengthening reasons and so on. So, um, you know, um, this this being part of chapter six, and as we move on with the conversation, I wanted to um, um, actually ask you to expand a little bit on the events and the impacts uh, on the perception of immunization as a closely connected um, tie between civil and political identities that happens right in the in, in the PRC in mm. after 49. Yes. So first to talk about laws and legislation, um, I think there are a couple of important events that happen in 1950. Um, one being the first National Health Work Conference, which is setting out kind of guiding principles for public health and hygiene policy in the new People's Republic of China, which includes serving uh, the workers, using mass mobilization as a method of public health work, prioritizing prevention and preventive medicine, and uniting Western and Chinese medicine. And in terms of these kind of guiding principles, uh, immunization uh, as a preventive strategy that often entailed uh, mass mobilization and served large populations, vaccinations seem to fit into this set of guiding principles rather nicely. Um, and so we see quite early on vaccines being enshrined in various health laws. Uh, that stipulate vaccination as a tool of seasonal disease prevention. Um, and so we see then things like an order that doctors of Chinese medicine be trained in generating vaccination against smallpox so that they can help with vaccination campaigns against smallpox. Um, we see an emphasis in this legislation on using propaganda, education, and persuasion to convince people to get vaccinated against infectious diseases. But we also see uh, included the point that if this kind of persuasive education uh, didn't have any effect, that forcible methods were to be used to inoculate against infectious diseases. Um, and so we see already just within the kind of um, legislation, interesting points, the fact that a clause like that is present um, might suggest that uh, some uh, people did see or would have seen vaccination against smallpox and other diseases as strange. Um, it might have suggested a certain degree of anticipation of resistance. Um, that's certainly something that we also see in propaganda of the time. So radio broadcasts from the early 1950s um, often set up kind of dramatic scenarios that um, kind of present characters who are vaccine skeptics in different ways. So a very common scenario might be for um, a radio play to have one character be an elderly gentleman um, who's having a conversation with one of his friends um, about how he doesn't need to get a vaccine because he's already lived for so long without getting sick. Um, so why bother? Um, and this conversation gets overheard by a young physician who kind of presents um, the face of the new China that's emerging and explains to um, these elderly gentlemen why it would be good to get a vaccine. Um, of course, these are all fictional scenarios, but they're designed to appeal to popular listeners. Um, that kind of suggests perhaps the kinds of fears and concerns that listeners might have. Um, so 